Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this evening. We thank you that we are able to gather, Lord, and to study um, just the ways that you have worked throughout church history. Lord, I pray that we'll uh, recognize that you are an unchanging God, Lord, um, and you have uh, revealed yourself to us faithfully in your word, and I'm thankful that we get to look back and how many people who have gone before us, Lord, our brothers and sisters in Christ, have um, sought to know you, Lord, uh, through your word. I pray that you'll just um, clear our minds, Lord, give us uh, just minds to be able to think well, um, and that we could ultimately do all the study so that we may fall more in love with you. I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. Um, Rick has the handouts, so if you need a handout, Make sure to go to Rick. <clears throat> so uh, today we are really um, getting beyond the time of Christ, uh, the time of Scripture. Uh, we're not trying to get beyond Scripture and necessarily in the things that we're talking about when it comes to Christ. But just on the historical timeline, Acts is over... First century is over, and now we're starting second century, um, known as the patristic era. The patristic era, you could see, is referred to a time that's roughly um, 100 to 500 A.D. Uh, And as we will be studying this, we will be looking at a specific topic, a specific doctrine, uh, and really just looking at how it was developed within these certain time periods. So today we're starting on Christ. If you remember, the first week we talked about in systematic theology how it labels um, different topics. So Christ is called Christology. So we're looking at the doctrine of Christ, Christology, in the first um, time of church history, between 1 and 500 A.D. Uh, And I... As I want all of our studies to be, I don't want this study just to be simply a, a lecture. Uh, since this is history, it will lean maybe towards that at moments, but I want this to be, again, devotional. I want us to study church history as Christians and see what we can learn, um, uh, learn from it about God and ultimately how this cha- affects us today. So, as you can see, I started question or this study for tonight with the question is who is jesus christ uh this is the question that we will be looking at throughout this whole study tonight since we're studying christ right christology in this time period and we'll be looking at suggested answers people have come up with throughout the centuries um so let's start the discussion who is christ who would we say christ is today what was that? The Son of God. The Son of God. Perfect. Anything else that we want to say? He's our Savior. He's died for us. But he's also God the Son. He's God the Son. He died for us, right? He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's the Son of God. Full God, full man. I mean, so mm-hmm. Full God, full man. That's key, right? We'll be talking a lot about that today and how the church really just struggled um, trying to figure out how to articulate 
the person of Christ properly, faithfully, biblically. Um, and I think it's cool to do this study because how we answer this question, right, who is Jesus Christ, is our confession of who Christ is. We say he is the Son of God. This is what we believe, who he, we believe he is, um, that he is fully God, fully man. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. This is a confession that has been confessed for thousands of years. And it's cool to see how throughout time people have, as I've been saying, um, we're trying to faithfully articulate how to best talk about Christ um, with so many different opposing views. So you can see we're starting uh, this a study with Peter's confession from Matthew sixteen sixteen, Christ asks him, who do you say that I am? And this is Peter's confession. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Right? So we could see there, he is the son of God. Uh, one of my favorite gospels is the gospel of John. And the whole point of the gospel of John is to really demonstrate the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. So, the next question is, what do we mean by that? This is what people have um, sought after, tried to figure out, what do we mean by this? We could see and faithfully exclaim or proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. We read that in Scripture. But what does that mean? Uh, words have meaning. What do we mean by this? That he is also God. All right. What else? When we say the things that we say about God, what do we mean by that? So let's talk about the fact that he is the Son of God. What does that mean? Nancy says that he is the Son, or that he is God. Born directly of. Born directly of. No other father, right? I say birth father. I would, yeah, I agree. I think it's like the. He chose to impregnate in his holiness a Mary sure. through immaculate conception. And um, so it is a direct lineage. It's not a sure. option. It's a real thing. So we talk about Christ being the son in the human form in that way, right? But then also, how do we talk about Christ then before he was born uh, in the human form? Uh, was he always the son? Was, and I think we could say yes. He was always the eternal begotten son. Um, and so I just want us to start thinking of these things. And these are the types of questions, we'll, uh, things we'll be thinking through as we look through some of these different individuals when and how they articulated it. But he was foreshadowed. Mm-hmm. You know, so he was already told that he would be. You're so right. God's already planted that seed from the beginning that the Messiah would come. Yeah, yeah. So it was always it was always part of God's plan, right? For him to be born, uh, for him to assume the human nature. Uh, but before then and after then, right? We know God doesn't change, and He always has been the Son of God, um, second person of the Trinity. But next week we will get more into uh, the relations with Christ and the other persons of the Trinity, because we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity in the Patristic era. So I'll try to focus just on the person of Christ tonight. Um, let's look at several of these suggested answers to the question, who is Christ? So that's the question we're looking at in the suggested answers to. Um, uh, docetism, docetism is uh, 
a heresy. So actually, just want to let you guys know, all four of these, right off the bat, are deemed heretical. And um, I don't believe they're faithful teachings of the doctrine of Christ. So we'll just start off with that. Um, So the first one denied that Jesus was really human. The first one denied that Jesus was really human. Um, it's from the Greek word uh, meaning to appear or to seem. So according to this belief, Christ almost was like a phantom that appeared human, but he wasn't actually human. Because how can God become flesh? That was the question. Exactly. It doesn't mean as much, right? Because if you're holding on to this position, then Christ didn't suffer, really. He just appeared to suffer. Um, So, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, I don't have him on here. Uh, Maybe you guys have heard of him, maybe you haven't. He lived between 35 AD and 108. um, And he is one of the main figures who fought against this false teaching, and you could read some of his writings. I actually brought some primary sources um, of different individuals to be looking at. So if you guys are ever interested in looking at some writings translated into English from long ago, early church history, you could borrow some. But I'll point those out as we get there. Um, So the second one... um, Ebionism. Ebionism denied that Jesus was really God. So this is kind of on the opposite. Yeah. Just a man, right? Denied the virgin birth. Also denied the virgin birth. And denied the redeeming death of Christ. Um, and so that's what you'll really see between these different uh, systems of belief as people were trying to understand who Christ is. Many times people would err way too far on one side and say he wasn't man, or they might err on the other side um, and say uh, the opposite, right? He is only man or he is only God. How do we understand that he is both? Uh, And the nuances and the articulation between the two. So yeah, the second one, deny that Jesus was really God. Um, This belief system was opposed by Justin Martyr. You might have heard of him. Justin Martyr lived between 100 and 165, um, and several others. Uh, Gnosticism. This is a lot more popular. Um, as in, you guys might have heard of this one. Gnosticism, though, is harder to articulate uh, because it's several different. There's several different forms of Gnosticism, um, and Gnosticism viewed Christ. You could some, write something like this down: viewed Christ as semi-divine or partly divine uh, figure who originated from God. Christ came to announce a secret knowledge on how to attain salvation. It's actually the knowledge that is Christ. Yeah, definitely. So Christ, who wasn't fully God himself, according to them, right, came to bring us the secret knowledge, but wasn't through Christ. Um, 
he was a, a messenger maybe in a way. Uh, and the secret knowledge isn't actually really found in Scripture, but it's passed down from the apostles. Um, yeah, yeah. So it is it is hard to articulate it because like there's different um, there's different um, ways to describe it, and there's different versions of it as well. Uh, this book, um, so this was opposed. Gnosticism by Irenaeus of Lyon. Um, this is Irenaeus' work. It's called Against the Heresies. Um, and he opposes Gnosticism a lot in this. So if you're interested in that, it takes a special kind of person to be interested in that. But um, you're more than welcome to borrow the book. Um, and Markian, uh, Markianism, the last one of this section, uh, named after Markian, Right, Markian lived uh, from 85 to 160, and he claimed that Jesus was God, clothed in the form of human of a human being. Um, so he claimed that Jesus is God, but he wasn't actually fully human. He kind of just, if you think of like when you're a kid or when you, when your kids put like a sheet over their head to pretend they're a ghost, they're not really a ghost. They just have a sheet over their head. Uh, And so it's the same sort of idea with this theory. Uh, He never really became fully man. He uh, is God, just took the outward form, appearance of man. So it's very similar to the the first one, actually, appeared or seemed to be man. Uh, Also, Markianism uh, believes that God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are completely different gods. what was that? Exactly. It's actually really interesting. If you ever want to nerd out on stuff, this is one of the ones that's like the God of the Old Testament is an evil being, and then Jesus, the embodiment of the higher God, and there's all these battles, and it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is, it's very interesting. I agree. So maybe you should read some of these um, books for sure as well. You're one of those special kind of people like me. <laughs> um. But these are just some belief systems within the first century, right? Or second century, I should say, of articulating who is Christ. So, okay, suggested answers found in the late second or early third century. Um, Lonnie made a joke already that uh, Celsius is spelt wrong here. Um, so this is a guy, actually, I'm not too familiar with him. Uh, he was a Hellenistic philosopher, Jewish philosopher. I... Um, don't know. I couldn't find dates of when he uh, was born or around when he was born or when, around when he died, so that's why I don't have dates on here uh, for him. Uh, but here, he claimed uh, that the incarnation of Christ is irrational. And uh, he said either God changed into human being or Jesus was just a man. Uh, and so the key word there is change. He was trying to articulate that if God became man, he had to change fundamentally to who he was, to who he is. Uh, and so he says the incarnation is irrational. Uh, so this, he was opposed by different individuals like Origen of Alexandria, um, who argue that Jesus maintained the divine attributes who, so, who, while rem- being man. So this is important. 
if we believe Jesus is fully God while he was here on earth, right, as fully man at the same time, we have to believe that he still had all of his divine attributes. I mean, his divine attributes is the, what makes him God, right? Uh, divine attributes is who God is, such as God is all-knowing. If he wasn't all-knowing, he wouldn't be God, right? God is um, all-powerful. If Christ wasn't all-powerful, he wouldn't be fully God. But then this gets tricky. Well, did he have the ability to exercise these divine attributes while he was human? Well, we would just simply look to the fact that Jesus humbled himself, right, to take on human flesh, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Um, And so that's why these discussions could be fun and hard to really get around. Uh, This next one, Paul, uh, again, wasn't really too familiar with him before I did some of the studies. Honestly, second century, early third century is an era of time that I uh, am not too, too familiar with. Um, But this guy... Uh, believe that Jesus was just a man adopted as the Son of God because of his faithfulness. So he taught that Christ was faithful as a man. And because he was faithful, because he um, was sinless, God adopted him and made him his his son uh, because of that. So, again, we're looking at all wrong answers. Uh, and during this time, I was trying to show that there's different people opposing these different views because we believe faithfully that Jesus is fully God, fully man. We'll see how that's articulated well later uh, as a church articulated it well. Uh, but there is these different faithful pastors throughout this time in the second, third centuries opposing these heretical beliefs as they were being brought up. Because this is a fundamental question. Who is Jesus? By getting this question wrong, we are getting um, salvation wrong. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Christ. But if we don't know who Christ is, right? how do we have salvation? And also, I want us to see why it's so important for us to understand the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Because by him being both, he bridges the gap that sin had caused between the two in his own person. This is why salvation is only possible through Christ, because he is fully both. Right? We believe separation from God and man is what happened because of sin in the garden. And so, how do we join those two together, God and man? How, do, how does man have a right relationship with God? It could only be done when those two are perfectly joined together in the one person of Christ. So, and that's why it's important for us to articulate that he is fully both, uh, fully God and fully man. All right. We're just moving right on along. Uh, I know there's a lot of people here. Uh, as the weeks continue, I will talk um, about about some of these individuals again. So hopefully we will get a little bit of an understanding uh, more understanding on these different individuals and what they said. Um, not every single week I'll be introducing a lot of people or different systems of belief. But today, as you can see, I am. <laughs>
All right, suggested answers found in the late 3rd or 4th century. Um, Arius of Alexandria, has anyone heard of him? His name was in last week's. Was it in last week's? Oh, yeah. So Arius is a big name because the Arian controversy is really what stems the first outside of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, stemmed then the first ecumenical church council, what we know as the Nicene Church Council in 325. Uh, and so Arius of Alexandria um, accused, so Arius accused the guy who's right underneath him, Alexander of Alexandria. Isn't that a fun name? It's a Alexandria. Um, Alexander of Alexandria. So Arius accused uh, the bishop of Alexandria, uh, which was Alexander. Um, what did he accuse him of? Let me look back at my notes. Um, he accused him of something called uh, Sabellianism, uh, which ultimately uh, put God, again, this is difficult, um, God in just one, one essence as, and one person where the Father, Son, and Spirit really were just, is just one. There's no distinction between the Father, Son, and Spirit, where God shows himself in different modes over time, and there's absolutely no distinction. So Arius accused Alexander of that. So in his accusation, he then articulated, there is a distinction between the Father and, um, and Son, rightly so. But he went too far and said, well, actually, Jesus isn't fully God. Jesus isn't fully God. Arius taught that Jesus wasn't fully God. Instead, Jesus is a created being by God, the Father, uh, who then used Christ to create all things. So he would still explain that through Christ, the world came to be, but Christ was first created in order to carry out those ends, that purpose. Um, and so this started, as I said, the Arian controversy, uh, and um, really is what made the church recognize they needed to gather to figure these things out in the Council of Nicaea in 325. Uh, the emperor, uh, Constantine, is the one who called the uh, the meeting of the different bishops to gather. Uh, Constantine, before Constantine, we should say this maybe for a historical context, before Constantine made Christianity a recognized religion, Christians were being persecuted big time. right? Um, and then Constantine comes in. There is a battle called the Battle of the Malivian Bridge uh, where Constantine wins. He um, establishes, he becomes a Christian he establishes Christianity as a recognized religion. Uh, and during all this, time goes on, and then he calls for this council to take place. So you have Arius, who is recognized not so nicely in church history. You have Alexander, the bishop at that time there. Then Athanasius. That's a fun word or fun name. Um, Athanasius of Alexandria also is considered a hero in a way of the um, Nicene Council. Uh, Athanasius is considered 
the hero, as I mentioned. Um, he became the defender of Nicene, uh, of the Nicene articulation of Christ. And if you could see on the second page, we will actually go through these different creeds and what Nicene uh, wrote out and how we're supposed to faithfully think of Christ um, and the different councils there. So that's, and then Apollinaris of Laodicea, the fourth guy in this section, was actually a friend of Athanasius. But he was not seen in such a good light like Athanasius was. Apollinarianism came from his teachings, and that was also considered heresy in one of the um, councils. So Apollinaris taught uh, that... Um, Jesus did not have a human mind. He, again, was trying to fight against Arius so much so and say, Jesus is God. In fact, he took on human flesh, but as he took on human flesh, it was really just the divine essence, and he didn't have a human um, soul or a human mind in that way. And so, again, how do we think of the divine person and the human person? How do they fit together? Uh, And that's just, they're trying to nuance it and figure out how to faithfully articulate who Christ is. That he is the Son of God. What does it mean that he is fully God and fully man? So let's just move on. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus. I actually have a work of him as well here. So I have... Gregory, and then Athanasius, the fun name. And you can see they're writing works specifically on Christ. So on the Incarnation by Athanasius, and then on God in Christ by Gregory of Nazianzus are two good works as well, um, if you want to read those. But Gregory is seen in a good light. So Athanasius, Gregory, they're, they're good guys in church history. Uh, whatever the Son of God takes up in the, in, the, in the incarnation is what he needs, is what he redeems. Um, if Jesus' humanity is merely the flesh rather than the flesh and the soul, then only the human flesh is saved. That was his articulation, his arguments against Apollinarianism. Uh, so Apollinarianism, again, I know this is a lot right now, um, teaches that... Jesus did not have a divine mind, or a human mind. He only had a divine mind in human form. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus taught that whatever Jesus took upon himself when he assumed the human flesh, that's what was redeemed. So if he did not have a human mind, if he did not have a human soul, that would not have been redeemed. So he was arguing the fact that Christ did take on a human soul and therefore also had a human mind in, at the same time remaining fully God. So, this is a lot, I know. But let's continue, 5th century, and then we will look through, I think, maybe what's a little bit more fun, the confessions and how they articulated um, the person of Christ faithfully here. So, lastly, uh, we have Cyril, uh, Nestorius, and Eutychus here for the first for the 5th century. And the way they articulated it is 
um, the person of Christ really, you could see the roots of it from the earlier individuals we've read or we already talked about. Um, um, Cyril kind of goes in line with the Nestorius controversy. So there's something called in the 5th century, the Nestorian controversy, obviously from the second guy here that's listed. Um, And this controversy was between Cyril and Nestorius uh, about the person of Christ. Um, And Nestorian... um, Nestorian taught that Christ um, let me see it is difficult to articulate the the nuances here uh, I'll just say this the the Nestorian controversy is what led to the uh, third ecumenical council, which we'll get to uh, in a bit. But we have these two debating on the person of Christ. Nestorian is considered the her- heretic in this position, uh, Nestorianism. And then you have to Eutychus as well here in the last bit here uh, is what led to the ultimately the f- fourth ecumenical council, which is known as the Chalcedonian Council in 325. So... There's a lot there. All right. Let's take a breathe, breath, breather. I need to take a breather. This is a lot of information. Um, we're going to try to art- go through the four ecumenical councils. Uh, there are a lot of ecumenical councils if you look at the history of the Catholic Church. Uh, the Catholic Church has... Um, ongoing ecumenical councils that they recognize as authoritative. Uh, These are the first four ecumenical councils that the Catholic Church would also recognize that we as Protestants would also recognize. Uh, We only recognize the first four ecumenical councils that the Roman Catholic Church recognize. Uh, The first one, as we've been talking about, 325, Council of Nicaea, denies Arianism, as I had mentioned earlier, and then drafts the Nicene Creed. Uh, Has anyone heard of the Nicene Creed before? Yes. Uh, You can see this is a shorter version of that. What was that, Nancy? Okay. Well, now you can see what it says right here. So I have it written here. It says, We believe, this is the Nicene Creed, that they articulated as they were opposing Arianism. uh, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. And then this is where it gets to Christ. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. That's crucial right there. Constant, uh, no, I can't speak right now. With the Father, um, really talking about is one essence with the Father there by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge uh, and quick in the dead. 
and in the Holy Spirit. You can see here this first articulation of the Nicene Creed has very little to say about the Holy Spirit. Not a lot has been articulated yet about him. Uh, It was really focusing on the person of Christ. Again, in relation to combat the uh, Aaron controversy at this time. Uh, Some of the main things that we want to see, right, is Christ is of same essence with the Father. Uh, He is begotten. He is not made, as Arian would have suggested. But yet, at the same time, he is man, uh, who became incarnate and was man. Uh, As the second council came around, Council of Constantinople in 381, it denies Apollinarianism, who we talked about earlier. And they simply added articulated more um, added to the Nicene Creed. So if you were to look at the Nicene Creed today, it's this longer version. I wanted to show you the shorter version and then what came as uh, more was articulated uh, after the Second Council. Could I get a reader for this second one for us? One God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all words, light of light, very God, and of very God. Begotten, not made, uh, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for all our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate of, by the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come again, with glory to judge the quick and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end, and the Holy Ghost the Lord and the giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets, and in holy Catholic and apostolic church we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So the consubstantial uh, with the Father is key there. Uh, it comes from the word homoousios, uh, if you were to study um, church history, that would be very crucial in understanding the person of Christ, that he is the same essence, is really what it's getting at. Uh, he is God, very God of very God, um, begotten uh, eternally, who became man, born of the Virgin Mary. That's really to articulate he was truly born in human flesh. Uh, when we talk about Christ um, becoming man in his incarnation, uh, it's most faithful to say that he assumed the human nature. Um, Not that he added human nature to him. Uh, Christ, God himself, doesn't add things to himself, but he assumed human nature. Uh, uh, That's how most individuals today simply articulated, try to to try to uh, work out that nuance there. But you could simply see it's the same thing, right? But it was, simply, it was added to uh, once the second ecumenical council came around, opposing the um, Apollinarianism. So, all right. 
Then we get to the third ecumenical council. Uh, this third one, the Council of Ephesus. Uh, so obviously this was in Ephesus. We know the book of Ephesians uh, happened in 431. This is one that is, I, I think, the least talked about of these four. Uh, simply because they didn't really add a whole lot. They just reaffirmed the Nicene Creed here. Uh, and they deny Nestorianism. And they reaffirmed the Nicene Creed. And then this last one, the Council of Chalcedon, uh, known as the Chalcedonian Council in 451. This is a big one for the person of Christ. If we're studying church history, which we are, and we're talking about the person of Christ, which we are, and talking about the patristic era, this is really where it comes down to uh, it, the Chalcedonian Council, I would say, is probably the most important one for tonight, talking about the person of Christ. Um, Below is a paragraph uh, of a long document known as the Chalcedonian Definition. Uh, I haven't fully read the Chalcedonian Definition, but most people point to this paragraph as the entire definition because it summarizes it up really well. And this today is really what we would affirm as faithful Orthodox Christianity when it comes to the question, who is Jesus Christ? Who is Christ? And this is really where we come down to it. 451, so you can see it uh, centuries after Christ has already ascended up to heaven. It's taken them this long um, due due to different different belief systems that were coming around about that they had to oppose and they had to figure out how to faithfully articulate and nuance uh, things based on what scripture has said. How do we think of Christ being fully God and fully man? Um, And then it's articulated well here in this, this document. It says, Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all unite in teaching that we should confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, going back to Nestorianism, I was having um, um, a, a blank in my brain uh, trying to think of what Nestorianism was. But Nestorianism is, so just to have a better understanding, um, a belief that G- there was two persons uh, in Christ. There was the divine person and that there was the human person. Two persons belonged in Jesus Christ. So Nestorian was trying to articulate how can we think of Christ being fully God and fully man. And so he explained that there's two persons in Christ, in the Logos, in the divine Logos. Uh, But as we could see in the Third Ecumenical Council, that was denied. That was uh, seen as unfaithful because how could there be two distinct Persons, And when you say there's two distinct persons within the second person, the Trinity, you get to almost two different wills, two different identities. And so they were um, putting an end to that. Uh, so that's what Nestorianism is. But let's go back to this definition. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all unite in teaching that we should uh, confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This same one is perfect in deity and the same one, you can see the emphasis in the same one there in response to some of these others that were coming about, such as Nestorian. 
uh, and the same one is perfect in humanity, and the same one is true God and true man, comprising of rational soul and a body. He is the same essence as the Father, according to his deity, and the same one um, is of the same essence with us, according to his humanity, like us in all things except sin. Right? So he's like us in all ways because he's fully, completely man, but without sin. Uh, he was begotten before the ages from the Father, according to his deity, but in the last days uh, for us in our salvation. And the same one was born, the Virgin Mary, the barrier of, uh, of God, according to his humanity. He is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, and only begotten, who is made known in two natures, united unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. So how do we talk about Christ being fully God and fully man, but yet not say he has two persons? The language that has been used throughout the centuries now is one person, two natures. One person, two natures. When we have children, we are a blend of mother and the father. Mm. And in this case, you've got the very best of both. You know? yeah. But in most of us, we don't always get the very best of both. Sure. You know? But if you really think about it, though, two, and, two beings, let's put that word, Mary and God, created one. Mm-hmm. It's just like we did. You know, we, he just doesn't have sin. Sure. But, so that's why he... So much set apart from the rest. Yes, uh, but we need to be careful also with that. Um, I think that's a, a nice way, a good way to think of it. Um, but with all the nuances, if you really to look at these different uh, belief systems that were coming about, uh, there was they were careful to not mix either the natures, two completely distinct but yet united natures, divine and human. The the human nature is not. Um, mixed in with the divine, the divine nature is not mixed in with the human. Two distinct natures, but yet one is how it's been articulated throughout the centuries. So, uh, continue here. The distinction between the two natures is not at all destroyed. Oh, right there is a good line uh, pulling up what I was just saying, right? The distinction of the two natures is not destroyed because they're not mixed because of the union, but um, because of the union, but rather the property of each Nature is preserved and occurs together into one person and subsistence. Um, he is not separate or divided into two persons, as we said earlier, uh, but he is one and the same Son, only begotten God and Lagos, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way the prophets spoke of him from the beginning, and Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and the counsel of the fathers uh, has handed the faith down to us. All right, so that's a lot there. And like I said, this is a bigger document on what the Chalcedonian definition is. Um, what we need to recognize, so let's bring it back. What we need to recognize, right? These confessions, these creeds, this Chalcedonian definition are helpful, right? But they aren't scripture. Um, people throughout the centuries, as we've been seeing in the early church, had have tried their best with the help of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to be able to understand Scripture. 
um, to understand who is Jesus Christ faithfully, right? Because this is important. This is who God is. This is how we have salvation. Um, with the bridging of the human and the divine together in the one person, how do we? Uh, how are we to think of these things? This Chalcedonian definition, Christ being one person with two natures, is, I mean, the orthodox understanding of Christianity um, and what is considered um, faithful teaching. And I believe that's what Scripture teaches here. Uh, Fully God, fully man, both, uh, which is what makes salvation possible. All right. I promise in the coming weeks we all have discussion questions and we could discuss more as well. Um, next week we'll be on the Trinity and uh, the Trinity is something that I have uh, delighted over for a long time and it's something that's dear to me and so I hope I get, we get to have more discussion then at that point um, on just the nature of God and how the person of Christ the fact that he is divine and human now relates to the Father and the Spirit and how we're supposed to think of the distinction between them but yet the unity between them at the same time. is When you understand who God is as the Trinity where the Son comes from the Father and the Holy Spirit comes from the Father and the Son, they act out the way that they are within time. This is why the Father is the one who sends the Son because that's who he is. He's the one that's sent from the Father, always. Uh, the, son, the Spirit is the one who is sent from the Father and Son because that's who God is, always eternally been coming from, spirating is a fun word, uh, from the Father and the Son. But that's uh, a bigger discussion that we could have at another time. So let me close this out in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, we love you, and uh, we thank you again for this time, Lord. I pray that we will be faithful students uh, of you, Lord, and I pray that we will simply use church history as a tool, Lord, to uh, better see, uh, or simply to see more ways of your faithfulness, Lord, throughout time. Lord, we love you, and we want to know you more. I thank you. Uh, we thank you that we can look back in church history to see how people have um, struggled through through this, Lord, to best articulate um, biblical truth, Lord, for our benefit. Uh, we pray these things in your name. Amen.